Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case, and today I am here with Ben Burgess, professor at Morehouse College. Is that right? Yeah. We're going to talk about Marxism and socialism. I'm looking forward to jumping in to those topics. Before we do, though, I wanted to ask you a bit about your previous books. You've got this one really nerdy one on philosophy of mathematics, I think, that just came out, right? So kind of, I, yeah, I have actually the most recent book is a book called Logic Without Gaps or Gluts, which is kind of about the liar paradox and whether you need to revise logic to deal with it, which is the stuff that I was doing in grad school. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the audience for that book is a tiny fraction of any of the other ones. Sounds like a philosophy book then. Yeah. You've also got Give Them an Argument, which is the title of your podcast, and your most recent, I believe, or your most recent political book being Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. Uh, there was actually one in between, which is the Christopher Hitchens book. Oh, right, right. So you are definitely like, it's fair to say, left-wing yeah. public intellectual. Would you describe yourself that way? I mean, if I did it, that would just be because I would feel silly. But I mean, I, I guess that's roughly what I'm trying to do, yeah. And you kind of want, want to discipline the left a bit, like try to take them to task so they can be more effective. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely right. I mean, I I sort of think of it as like, even with the first book, part of what I was trying to do was that, right? To try to get the left to do a better job of presenting our positions and all that stuff. And then the other half is the sort of arguing for those positions, debunking the right kind of half. I've been thinking about this and I guess I sort of got mixed feelings about it being on the right, because on one hand, I'm glad to see that you're calling out this stupidity. On the other hand, do I want a smarter left? I'm not sure. Would you want a smarter right? Oh, uh, yeah. Would I want a smarter right? No, I, I, I don't. I want, I want the dumbest, most of that possible right. But then that, that might be the right that ends up being in charge, though, is the thing. Yeah. I mean, in, in a sense, I would like a a better right than in the sense that, like, I would like a right that was not, like, ragingly eager to, you know, make life hard for you know, gay and trans kids and things like that. So we could just sort of put all that off the table and have a nice argument about economics. Like I could definitely see the appeal of that fantasy, but I don't know that I want to write that's like more strategically savvy because I want them to lose. So do you think of like the left going wrong? You, you take a lot of issue with what's called wokeness. Say a little bit about why you take issue with that. Sure. I like this is really not going to be captured for people listening to this as a podcast later. So I should say that Spencer is drinking coffee as he's asking me these questions, which keeps making me think of the uh, Troy and Abed's uh, pseudo morning show community. You know, it's, they're always they're always holding cups of coffee in there. But yeah, look, I think that a lot of what we're talking about when we use the the term wokeness, which is probably not a great term because it's used to mean so many different things and has a little bit of a convoluted history. But I think a lot of what people are talking about when they talk about it being objectionable is a style of like rhetoric in pursuit of social justice poli politics that tends to be extremely moralistic, that tends to focus on individual morality in a certain way, like maybe individual privilege that tends to really emphasize identity distinctions and sometimes kind of falls into a sort of pop standpoint epistemology where like 
what you think sort of matters more or less because of who you are. I think that a lot of it's based on a bad analysis of how, you know, real world injustice works, which we can certainly get into that sort of conflates individual social prejudices with complaints about, you know, distribution of resources and things like that in a way that I find really unhelpful. I think that it tends to go with a kind of style of like moralistic hectoring that I think is really alienated to a lot of people who might even be very open to a lot of the kind of underlying left position that I would like, right? I mean, I think about people like even certain kinds of like democratic socialist politicians like AOC is the obvious example, sort of tend to combine policy preferences that I like with some pretty aggressive appeals to the quote unquote woke side of the culture war in in ways that I don't, you know, I don't think really advance the uh the the substance of the policy. I don't think really advance the cause of kind of realigning American politics in a way that you'd have to if you were ever going to actually achieve uh those those political obje- objectives. So yeah, I, I don't I'm not particularly friendly to a lot of what people are talking about when they talk about wokeness. It's complicated because there's this weird dynamic where people both use that term to describe all the stuff that I'm complaining about right now, but also a lot of conservatives, because they sort of realize that a lot of the population finds this stuff incredibly annoying. They kind of run with that and weaponize it by sort of describing everything they don't like as woke. And uh, so you get these weird conversations where people are talking past each other or where people assume that if you're criticizing wokeness, what you must be saying is like, I don't care about like discrimination against certain groups or whatever, you know, which is obviously not what anybody who's who's on the left who would be making this critique actually is saying. But I mean, that's part of why it's all a weird can of worms. But yeah, you you know, you are right that a lot of the stuff that I don't like about the left kind of falls into that. I was wondering if you could give a brief sort of explanation for why this happened. Sure. And, and I want to like float something and see what you think about this. Yeah. So here's a very roughly Marxist idea, or my attempt to express it anyway, economic structures determine what ideas are out there and how they're expressed and disseminated. And I wonder if you could maybe see some of this wokeness stuff, a product of like the social media structure, creating ways that people have to express themselves that channel themselves toward these sorts of ideas. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's not where I thought you were going, but I I think that's right. I think that there's a lot about how social media works that encourages this like maybe style of political discourse. The fact that Twitter, especially sort of like what the format is good for is like really quick snappy rejoinders. That's like really the only thing that you could do effectively. You can use it for other things. And, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this, like, 100-tweet thread to, like, you know, give you some complicated analysis or something. And people do do that. But that's not really what the platform promotes. You know, what it really promotes is this, like, certain style of, like, half-ironic kind of moral condemnation that, like, it, it often feels like everybody is kind of going for, right? Because that's just what it's all set up not consciously, right? But I mean, that's what it, it effect, right, is uh, is set up to promote. So I think that's definitely right. I mean, I think there's also a different kind of sense in which there's a material explanation of it, which is that a lot of the kind of, you know, social justice politics that people are talking about when they talk about wokeness 
I think reflects the class background of a lot of people who are engaged in progressive politics because there's this way in which a lot of it tends to be bound up with this analysis of what social injustice is and what would count as like redressing it that I think makes a lot of sense from the perspective of middle-class people who are all kind of trying to climb certain sorts of professional ladders. And you could kind of frame a lot of that, right, as a, as a social justice issue, that it's like a little victory, right, if somebody from one of the right groups, you know, prospers, you know, within that, even though that's not going to help most people pretty much by definition, right? You know, there are only so many slots at the top or even the middle, you know, of the social ladder. But a lot of this stuff, I think not very coincidentally, uh, has a aroma of the human resources department about it. I mean, I think that you think about the profusion of like diversity, equity, and inclusion offices and universities and other kinds of organizations. There is an extent to which a lot of this kind of identity-based moralism comes out of people sort of weaponizing it against each other as they're, you know, as they're kind of fighting each other for professional advancement and oftentimes in increasingly precarious fields. You know, think about academia, you know, and I think oftentimes when you're fighting for like whatever crumbs are left of a sort of much more precarious but traditionally middle-class field, right? I think that that itself kind of encourages people to bring the knives out, you know, to sort of reframe, you know, their personal and professional beefs, their sort of desire for, you know, their friends' advancement, et cetera, as social justice issues, which I think does get you a lot of the sort of shape of quote-unquote woke political discourse as you have it right now. I mean, one of the things Mark said that I do agree with is that the civil servants are not acting on behalf of the whole people. They have their own class interests. Yeah. And you could say that, too, about these diversity trainer, DEI people. Like, they have a class interest in, in keeping this whole thing going, and, and you can never have enough of what we provide and that sort of thing. So that's definitely a part of, of all this. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. So without further ado, let's just jump in with socialism. Yeah. I'm going to do what I've done before and make an attempt to define it. And then you can give me a letter grade, Professor sure, Marcus, sure, sure. A through F. And then, and then you can go ahead and give your red marks and whatever. Sure. So, so this is what I would say socialism is. Socialism is a, is a social system whereby the means of production are collectively owned. And to that, I add... Two caveats. One, it's got to be a fairly large society. It can't just be a single household. Like, Or if Adam and Eve are the only two people on earth and they're each taking care of an apple tree or something, that's not socialism. It's too small scale. And the other thing I would say is it's got to be an enduring situation. Socialism doesn't happen in five minutes. It doesn't happen in everybody coming together because there's a flood or something like that. A momentary emergency. It's got to be an enduring state of operations. So I would add those two caveats, and then I would say it's collective ownership of the means of production. And I'll add that when I say collective ownership, I don't say public. So that's compatible with anarchistic socialism. So that's that's my attempt. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I don't know about a letter grade, but I, I don't know that there's anything that you said that I particularly disagree with. I think that some of those caveats about like, if you're in some sort of post-apocalyptic movie and there are like three people left in the world and they're all sharing, you know, they're all like living in the same household and sharing everything. Is that socialism? I don't know. I mean, who cares? Certainly it's not what we're really talking about or thinking of when we talk about socialism. I mean, if I were asked for a definition, I'd probably just say the thing about the social ownership of the means of production. But like, yeah, but I I think that the hope that's being expressed when people use the word socialism is that you could have a complex modern society with the kind of productive capacity that exists under capitalism and all that stuff where you no longer have capitalist social structures and you haven't gone backward to something even more inegalitarian like feudalism. You've gone forward to something much more egalitarian and democratic on an ongoing basis, that this is not just like, you know, there's some sort of weird fluke where during a war or something for the purpose of winning the war, everything is being collectively owned, you know, just as a sort of necessity. But that on an ongoing basis, yeah, that it's like a new mode of production. So, yeah, I, I think I agree with everything you just said. Cool. Well, I know that you're a, a qualified fan of Cohen's defense yeah. of socialism. So that's a pretty easy entry point into this topic. So uh, do you want to go ahead and describe his whole camping setup and, and the point he's trying to make with that? Yeah. So... He's got this uh, very short book, came out, I think, posthumously, but definitely the year he died. It was definitely like in motion, you know, before he died. It wasn't like a draft somebody found on his laptop or something, you know, but it's a very short book. You can read it in the afternoon. It's called Why Not Socialism? And it's a, it's a really like unique and creative kind of way of, of making this argument. You know, it's certainly nothing I would have thought of before I'd read it because he starts not by kind of, talking in the way that I think most socialists would if they were making this argument about the sort of injustices of capitalism or talking about history or anything like that. Instead, he gives this very simple scenario. I think it would be standard to describe it as a hypothetical scenario, but I think it's actually kind of important to understand that it's not. Like, there's nothing hypothetical about the initial scenario. He's just describing what actually happens 10,000 times a day. Which is that, you know, some group of friends goes on a camping trip and he's just describing how that works standardly. And the point that he's making in particular is, isn't it interesting that in this very small scale setup where, you know, you're in this sort of artificial environment, you're taking a break from your normal life and, you know, you're doing so with people you have a good rapport with and all that typically, you know, not always, right? This is sort of your mini society right? This sort of extremely temporary, extremely small scale, right? So in terms of both of those caveats that you talked about earlier, right? This extremely temporary, extremely small scale mini society, but it's the one that you have the most control over you're ever going to have, right? Because it's like, this is like, just how should we do things for a weekend? And, you know, I guess if you were going to talk about it, which you probably wouldn't normally, right? You know, you, you just kind of all know how to do this, but if you were going to talk about it, right? I mean, you've got quite a bit of control over it. And how would you structure that? And Cohen points out, well, the way you'd structure it is in this very, very socialist way, right? In fact, not even like in a way that would probably resemble what either Cohen or I would think of as like a kind of socialism that would be very realistic to think we could attain on a large scale anytime soon. But like, really like, a socialist, like most utopian, fond longing for how they might hope the 23rd century would work. It's this totally marketless, 
environment where everything is being at least treated as if temporarily it's uh, publicly owned, at least everything that multiple people are going to be using. And everybody's just kind of putting in the work that they're putting in, and everybody's reaping the results in this very egalitarian way. And then the crucial part of this is the second part of the camping trip set up, which is he says, okay, I've just described a sort of realistic camping trip of the kind that, you know, people actually go on, but we can imagine a very unsocialist hypothetical camping trip, right? You can imagine a camping trip where you start to introduce some um, market principle. He has this very funny part where he's like imagining different people on the camping trip asserting like very standard kinds of capitalist property rights. The one that always sticks out of my memory for some reason is Sylvia finds an apple tree in the forest and she comes back and reports, oh, I found an apple tree. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, we could all have applesauce and apple strudel and et cetera, et cetera. She's like, yeah, not so fast. I discovered this, so it's mine. And if you guys want to enjoy the apples, then I have certain conditions. You know, I need more space in the tent or whatever she's going to demand in exchange for people using her apple tree. And there are a few other examples like this, but they're all the same format, that there are people who are asserting standard kinds of capitalist property rights. Like in that case, it's like property rights based on first discovery, which is the sort of thing a lot of, you know, that like sub libertarian philosophers would really emphasize the importance of. Uh, there's another example. It's about property rights based on inheritance. Uh, there are a couple of other examples where people are just kind of bargaining under the sort of standard rules of a free market, you know, for various kinds of advantages. He makes the point, well, look, in this case, where like you could set things up however the hell you want to, right? Because it's like you wouldn't go on the trip if you didn't like it. This is like sort of maximally under your control. You would never stand for any of this stuff. You'd never go on a camping trip with these people again. I don't think Cohen thinks this like is some sort of knocked out argument in and of itself. I think it's like a sort of suggestive way of communicating some basic moral intuitions. This is this very sort of weird kind of gentle landed setup for the argument of the rest of the book. Which is, look, this gives you at least some reason to give socialist ideas a second look, that there are at least a certain sort of circumstance under which this is how you would like to organize your little mini society. So here's the interesting question. Would we also want to organize our real society that way? And if not, why not? And he sort of says, well, look, if you have the sort of socialist intuitions I want you to have about the camping trip case, here are some plausible moral principles that could help you make sense of that. And here's what it would look like to apply the plausible moral principles to society as a whole. And then here are a bunch of objections that you could make to that. And some of them are maybe like pretty serious objections. And, you know, some of them he thinks, you know, aren't so good. And he acknowledges that there are certain kinds of logistical barriers to having a society that's as socialist as the camping trip is. And he at least takes seriously the idea that there might be deeper barriers, although he also kind of counsels against sort of giving up too early and, and not at least trying. And he ends up with a kind of qualified endorsement of like, yeah, this is worth at least trying to like get as close as we can to this kind of socialist ideal and at least sort of measuring social progress by how close we've gotten. So I guess one way to characterize this is I sometimes use the term a non-coercive argument in the sense that what I mean by a coercive argument is like 
you accept principles A through C, logically you're committed to D. You must accept. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, instead of doing that, he's like, here's an ideal that I find attractive. Maybe you find it attractive too. Let me sort of draw you into a set of principles that you might find appealing. Yeah. And he's so, sort of a gentle get you on yeah. the uh, primrose path that way. Yeah. I think that's a fair description. Before we go on, you should say something about the two principles that he comes up with that he thinks that the camping trip thought experiment supports. Yeah. And he does, I should say, along the lines of what you just said. I mean, he does briefly acknowledge in the book that it's like, look, if you just have the basic intuition that I want you to have about the camping trip, right? That a sort of normal socialist camping trip is better than a weird capitalist one. That clearly doesn't compel you to sort of adopt my particular principles. We could probably come up with a bunch of different principles that could capture, you know, our, our immediate intuition. But this looks to be like a pretty plausible way of making sense of these reactions. And so the two principles are a principle of community, which is going to be important for the stru structure of the argument, but I, I think it should be admitted at the outset is like, I think he's is much is kept at a much sort of more suggestive level. The other principle is much clearer, at least to me. And then the sort of principle that he spends a lot more time on, not coincidentally, because it's something he spent a lot more time on in his other work, uh, which is a certain form of equality of opportunity principle, which is surprising to some people because equality of opportunity is the kind of equality that defenders of capitalism will often plant their flag on, right? You know, it's like, no, we like that, right? We don't like this quality of outcome stuff that you left his life, but we like equality of opportunity. But he says, well, look, if you want like a really deep equality of opportunity principle, uh, that's actually going to lead you in socialist directions. So he makes a distinction between three different kinds of equality of opportunity. So one is what he calls bourgeois equality of opportunity, which is where you just say, well, there are no legal impediments in the path of anybody to succeed, to sort of like rise up within some professional structure or whatever, you know? So like, I think this is made clearest by thinking about what would violate it, right? Feudalism would obviously violate it, right? This kind of an ideal was like sort of forged in opposition to that because there's no mechanism, you know, for a serf to become a lord, you know, uh, legally, like racial discrimination, you know, would violate it. That would be an obvious example. And so it's maybe a little bit thicker than like, what the most extreme libertarian might be willing to commit to. Cause you know, it, it does maybe, I think even the bourgeois quality of opportunity principle could maybe be used to ground like laws against private sector discrimination and stuff like that. But anybody who's a little bit closer to the political mainstream, you know, would not along with the bourgeois quality of opportunity, like in any sort of modern liberal society be like, yeah, we're pretty much all egalitarians in this little. Yeah, place, right? yeah exactly. Right. But then of course that is still, again, at least relative to modern liberal societies, right? That's still a pretty thin principle. One way of illustrating its thinness is to go to the second equality of opportunity principle that he talks about, which is he calls left liberal equality of opportunity. I would actually argue that left liberal equality of opportunity might be enough to get you to anti-capitalist conclusions by itself. But the idea is left liberal equality of opportunity is says, well, if you, get, you want a real equality of opportunity, you need to compensate for certain kinds of social disadvantages, right? Like, even if you have no, like, discrimination that, like, you're not allowed to rise to the top because of who you are, like, you don't have that level of discrimination, if it's nonetheless the case 
that some people come from social conditions where it's just enormously more difficult for them to rise than uh, than people who come from more advantageous circumstances. Then you violated left liberal equality of opportunity. He gives the example of Head Start programs, the sort of thing that are motivated by this conception of equality of opportunity. I will say, as we're recording this, just last night I was watching part of the debate that just happened between Jordan Peterson and Kyle Kalinske, and there's a point in there where Kyle says, well, if we're going to have real meritocracy, everybody needs to be starting from the same place. And, you know, Peterson sort of rejects that in the name of a thinner version of equality of opportunity. So, no, 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 you just don't want barriers, you know, to people winning the race. So, but then, like, Cohen thinks that if you really take equality of opportunity seriously, if you're really running with the sort of most important kind of moral intuition that might be, be kind of underlying an equality of opportunity principle, what you should really endorse is what he calls socialist equality of opportunity, which he talks about elsewhere as luck egalitarianism and his more sort of technical writings about uh, political philosophy. Basically, my way of putting it would be inequalities in outcome can't be traced back to factors that are outside of your control. Right? So each of these three is going to incorporate the one before it. Right. If you believe in left liberal equality of opportunity, you believe in bourgeois equality of opportunity. And if you believe in socialist equality of opportunity, you believe in left liberal equality of opportunity. But each is going to go beyond the others because in each case, you're removing more barriers than you were before. And by the time you've got socialist equality of opportunity, the idea is, well, look, why do we find feudalism so objectionable? I mean, there might be like utilitarian reasons we find it objectionable because it doesn't lead to, you know, a thriving economy or whatever. But like, on that kind of moral rights level, why do we find feudalism so objectionable? Because whether you're born a lord or a serf is outside of your control, right? You know, why do we find the kinds of social disadvantage that left liberal equality of opportunity might focus on so objectionable? Because whether you, you know, you grew up with a, going to a private school and getting SAT tutors, or you go into a school where you have to go through metal detectors, you know, is outside of your control. And then maybe most interestingly and ambitiously, Cohen would also include facts about sort of innate talents and things like that as facts outside of your control, which I, I would definitely defend him on. I think that's right, but I, I think that's the most controversial part of it. I think the kind of point that Cohen's making here is made really well in a book from a couple of years ago by Freddie DeBoer called The Cult of Smart, where, you know, he, look, people don't really, you know, typically, you know, choose to be stupid, right? Like the, nobody is like how smart you are, what you're what athletic capacities you have, whether you have the right kind of cognitive talents that are going to be rewarded by helping you rise through the ranks of a sort of maybe the professional managerial classes, even if you come from a poor socially disadvantaged background, is as much outside of your control as whether you come from a socially disadvantaged background. One follow-up I want to add to this is, yeah. and I think he actually says this, if you're a hard determinist, so you don't actually control anything, really. Yeah. You don't act, ultimately have control. Then the socialist egalitarian principle is just strict egalitarianism. Right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. So, so he's currently willing to allow inequalities based on wise or foolish choices. Yeah. And even that, he has this principle of community that even says there are going to be limits on that. Yeah. And I'll just say briefly, even some people on the right have found some kind of principle like that appealing, like uh, Charles Murray, for example, in Coming Apart, mm -hmm. is worried about too much inequality, like destroying a notion of community within the U.S. So 
that intuition is is held by people who are definitely not socialists. Yeah, I, I mean, one way of thinking about this. So, okay, yeah, you're right. Socialist quality of opportunity principle is going to collapse into just simple equality of outcome if you don't believe in free will. Cohen definitely does. I don't actually know if there are other places where he like deeply gets into the literature about this, but since he's having fun in this like sort of short, punchy book, he just kind of like rhetorically rolls his eyes at free will skeptics and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you know the free will, then this is an unimportant distinction, but come on, right? You know, clearly we have some kind of free will, but because he does believe in free will, this principle doesn't just collapse into strict quality of outcome uh, that you can't have some differences because of wiser fool's choices or just because of like, you know, different preferences, right? Some people like money more and some people like free time more, you know, stuff like that, right? But yeah, it is crucially the much less fleshed out principle is some sort of community principle, which says this is not exactly how Cohen puts it. And there's actually a lot of exegetical argument about exactly how to understand the few things that Cohen says about this. But, you know, the way I would think of it is just like, yeah, if you sort of care about people, if you think of them as members of your community, you're not going to let the price of making even pretty dumb decisions you know, going to be to, um, that you're just like completely fall off the map. Right. I mean, like I was uh, talking about this with my wife the other day, we were talking about, you know, Brittany Griner bringing weed to Russia. It's like, yeah, that that's a really dumb thing to do. Right. You know, you shouldn't do that. Like, that's like, okay, that's a, what's wrong with you thing. But like, also like, you know, somebody can make a pretty dumb decision and I still feel bad for them if they end up having to spend the next 10 years uh, in a Russian prison. And, you know, maybe in that case, it's relatively low on the old priority list, you know, but like, you know, you think, yeah, it might be good if there was some sort of diplomatic effort to to get her out. Uh, and so, you know, you could say something similar here, you know, if you, if you make really foolish decisions, you know, then there might be a, a lower bound to how far we're going to let you fall because of that, you know, and that's what the community principle is there for. Yeah. You take all of your life savings to the track and you bet on the wrong horse Cohen's not going to say well sorry you get to starve to death because look at the stupid thing you just did so i think we've got cohen's basic view before us i wanted to give some critiques like first of the camping setup and then of the principles yep so one initial reaction i had to reading it was why isn't he just doing this here are a bunch of nice people uh-huh. Let's call this socialism. Here are a bunch of big meanies. Let's call these people capitalists. Uh-huh. How is he not just doing that? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if this gets at your critique or not exactly, right? But I mean, like, one way that people have criticized it that at least sounds like that, so it might be what you're getting at, is like, well, look, Cohen is crafted a sort of study vision of socialism with like a dark vision of capitalism, even to the extent that you could call any of the socialism or capitalism, right? I mean, you know, when you were defining socialism earlier, you know, both of your caveats would definitely rule these out, right? As counting, right? That's like the kind of critique that Jason Brennan makes in his book, you know, his response book, uh, Why Not Capitalism? And, you know, one of the points that I make in response to that is what he's contrasted is just a sort of realistic, normal thing that people do and how it usually goes which sort of comports with certain socialist principles. And he's not contrasted that with some like nightmare dystopia vision of capitalism. He's just contrasted that with people asserting exactly the kinds of property rights that 
pro-capitalist philosophers are very concerned with with validating, right? I mean, like this is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, your Robert Nozick's or Jason Brennan's are actually most concerned to defend, right? In a really sunny vision of a libertarian utopia, right? This is exactly the kind of thing that you're concerned with saying is okay. Uh, that is like asserting property rights based on discovery or based on inheritance or, you know, based on just what you can get in, in a market transaction. So I think that undermines it to a certain extent. I think the other sort of similar thing that people do, and like this includes like leftists who don't like Cohen because they're like, what is this airy fairy moralizing? I want to hear about history and economic analysis. We'll be like, look, you just, yeah, sure, sharing is good, but that has nothing to do with like any kind of real argument about, you know, how societies work and all this stuff. And I guess the question at that point, relies kind of boils down to do you think there's an interested enough analogy right to be suggestive between this like very small scale form of temporary social organization you know and and like a big interest in you know form of of social organization for this to like legitimately sort of get your intuitive juices flowing at all or is it just so different not just in the way that like Cohen acknowledges, which is like, yeah, sure. It's obviously much easier to uh, organize yourself on the basis of socialist principles if it's you and four friends in a tent than if it's you and five billion people you don't know organizing a world economy, right? Fair enough. It's maybe more realistic or whatever. Like Cohen will acknowledge that, but he's just going to say that's not relevant because what I'm trying to get at is the sort of like moral desirability of it, right? So like, I think you'd have to go beyond that and say, like, it's so disanalogous that the sort of moral desirability of the one doesn't even tell you anything about the moral desirability of the other. And maybe that's right, but that doesn't seem as obvious to me. So I'm wondering, though, why the situation is even described as socialist, because Mm -hmm. they're sharing their stuff. You know, if I have property, I can share that property. (laughs) If I have free association, I can associate with people who are jerks and go camping with them. Sure. And if we're nice people, we're probably going to get along. And so it just seems like a stretch to say that this is even a socialist ideal. Mm. I mean, he says, well, you said it comports with those principles, but that's like a very weak Mm. kind of support. When somebody says this evidence is consistent with, there should be like a little red light going on, like consistent with is a very weak for, it's like only abductively supporting it. Yeah. I I mean, one thing you could at least say is that the first camping trip is maybe consistent with both, right? The, whereas the uh, second camping trip is only consistent with like capitalist uh, ideals and not with socialist ones, right? Because again, you know, these are examples of people doing exactly the kinds of things that libertarian philosophers are at pains to defend people's right to do. Whereas they're precisely the sorts of things that, that, Critics of capitalism like Cohen think that they would like to have a society organized in such a way that people don't have a right to do these things. So, I mean, I guess you could get a little bit closer by saying, like, okay, would you support saying in advance before you go on the camping trip? Uh, look, I went on this camping trip once with Sylvia and whoever these other people are, whose names I never remember, and never again, man, right? You know, I want to lay it down as a ground rule in advance, you know, that nobody could do these things. You know, uh, would you? think that that was a good rule if so that nudges you maybe at least a little bit closer to the direction of saying like yeah you know we would find the assertion of these kinds of property rights odious and that gives us at least some reason to question why we accept them in larger society 
I think what if we came up with a third camping trip though? So you have yeah. chill people hanging out, good camping trip. Then you have bad capitalist camping yeah. trip. How about bad socialist camping trip where, you know, everybody goes out and you make a bunch of s'mores and then they get redistributed to people. And you're like, wait, you know, those are my s'mores. I brought this stuff. I made it. And they're like, nope, sorry. We've got our egalitarian principles. Or I don't know. Maybe I'm not imagining the best version of this, but you see where I'm going with this, right? Like, yeah, I could imagine a camping yeah. trip in which the socialist principles seem odious to the people in the same way that the capitalist assertions of property rights are odious in Cohen's second camping trip. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's challenging about that is that the sort of implicit ground rules of a normal camping trip are already pretty damn socialist. So it's like, it's, it's a little, it's a little tricky to like come up with like, what's the modification that's like, here's the thing that would like clearly comport to the set of principles. Some, so, you know, that like advocates of socialism would defend, but like, we would like it in that case. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's at least not obvious what that would look like. Cause like the sort of implicit ground rules would already be like, yeah, you're like, Everybody gets some more, you know, like you're, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to say that there are people who like, I brought these marshmallows. So like, you know, only I get some more is made with these marshmallows, you know, which is, I, I mean, I, I think it might be, again, maybe you could do this and, and if you can, right, then, you know, you could get some of the same advantages that, that Cohen is getting from his, which are, you know, that you've, you've like inclined people to at least give a you know sympathetic look to some sort of i don't know libertarian principles or something that would rule out socialism and then you could ask well if we wouldn't accept this here why should we accept it in larger society and that maybe that'd be an interesting counter argument i'm just not 100 percent sure what it would look like maybe if it's hard to imagine this third camping trip yeah part of the reason why is that there's just not a whole lot of production going on in yeah. a camping trip like you go on a camping trip or a vacation to expend, you know, your uh, yeah. resources, not to like make more of it. I mean, I guess you can have making s'mores as a kind of production and going fishing, fishing. If you're doing that. Sure, right. Yeah, that yeah. could be a kind of production or, you know, collecting berries or apples or whatever. Uh, yeah. But for the most part, camping is not like a productive activity. And so you're not going to feel the bite of any sort of rules that make you redistribute what you produce or whatever, because there's just not a whole lot of that going on. And that's kind of one of the things that makes me think that this is maybe not the best kind of case to consider to test any kind of mm -hmm. principles of distributive justice, right? Because it puts you in this environment where there's not a lot of conflict. There's not a lot of concern about production. But it's precisely in those sorts of circumstances that we need principles of mm. distributive justice at all. Like, and actually, I'm going to go on a tangent and register my one complaint. I think Nozick has had this complaint too. I think Scruton has had this complaint. But the term distributive justice, I think, tends to the left, right? Because it seems like you've already got this huge pile of goods. It's already been created. And it's just a matter of like, how do you hand it out? And then you you think of like, well, if I've got a bunch of candy and I've got, you know, four kids, I should divide it into four piles or something. But if what you're worried about is like producing wealth and maintaining structures that will keep society wealthy in the long run, then it's not distribution that you're thinking about. It's production. But the label 
distributive justice sort of like puts that off stage in a way. I guess to start with the last thing you said, I mean, which is interesting because in a strange sort of way, Mark says the same thing, right? At the end of the first chapter of the critique of the Gotha program, you know, he's just gone through criticizing essentially the party platform of what became the founding Congress, the German Social Democrats. And, you know, he's like just spent several paragraphs criticizing all the stuff that's said about distribution in there. And he has all sorts of interesting things to say about it. But then at the end of it, he says he sort of does this weird move where he's like, that said, this isn't what we should be focused on anyway, right? Like questions about distribution are, I'm paraphrasing, right? But he sort of says, are just kind of downstream from questions about who owns the means of production anyway. That's the real question, right? That the sort of distribution of resources you have under capitalism is just what you're going to get, you know, given the sort of separation of labor and ownership and, you know, and all that. Whereas, you know, if, if you have workers control, you're going to end up with very different distribution and that's really what you should be focused on. But yeah, I mean, maybe, right? I mean, maybe if you start talking about distributive justice, uh, maybe that sort of is rhetorical framing that inclines people in a more left-wing direction. If you start by talking about like property rights, you know, that would be the framing that would tend to be, you know, people in the opposite direction. I mean, I'm not sure how much I want to go to the wall in defense of Coe's reading the camping trip, because while I do think it's like, you know, I think it's like kind of a cool argument, but I also think it's not, and I don't even really think it's intended to be sort of coercive in the sense that you laid out earlier, right? You know, so like in a certain sense, I don't think this matters that much, but I think that the sort of counter to what you said is like, okay, yeah, sure. There's not much production going on, but what production is going on, right, is being done in this sort of like everybody pitches in and then the results of that production are, are handled in a very egalitarian way, you know, kind of, kind of matter. I think the way to defend it would be to say that precisely the fact that there's no crisis going on, right? You know, that we're not in the, okay, we really need to, you know, we really need our limited principles because we're going to be in trouble otherwise. That, you know, it's it's sort of an escape from your cares is the thing that makes it a situation in which you sort of have maximal flexibility to design the setup however the hell you want to set it up. And if it's the case that, under conditions of maximum flexibility, the thing that's most attractive is is designing it in a socialist way. And in particular, you'd find the sort of introduction of like very standard elements of capitalist economies like really odious in that. That does at least like make vivid certain kinds of socialist intuitions. Although, again, ultimately, I agree with you. It would be a little silly to treat the campy trip thing as a knockdown argument for anything. You know, I, I think it's a sort of way of like, kind of invited you in. It's like, hey, you see on a basic intuitive level like why I find this stuff appealing. I actually think Brennan does a good job of sharpening this one point that yeah. Colin makes, which I think is an interesting point, yeah. which is that even if socialism is unworkable, it can still be an attractive moral ideal. And you could think that we're stuck with capitalism, but that's just too bad. I don't know necessarily what the moral upshots would be, the practical upshots would be yeah. if that were true, but it seems like at the very least, people who tried out socialism or advocated for these reforms and they turned out disastrously, we would at least not judge them as harshly because it really would be true that they were pursuing really attractive ideals. And it really is true that capitalism is morally unattractive in the ways described, even if we can't do better, in fact. Yeah, and, and I do think that something that 
a reader of Brennan could miss is that that's not at all Cohen's position, right? I mean, like Cohen thinks that, you know, it is worth at least trying. And he certainly seems to be at least somewhat optimistic about the idea that we can at least have some kind of market socialism, that he even seems to think that we have some reason to try to go beyond that if we can. I think the other upshot, like, let's say that sort of to speak loosely full socialism and what, what would it, that would actually mean or not mean as a, you know, cat of worms in itself. But like, let's sort of say like fully embodied this ideal is impossible, which I actually think it might be right. That's a pretty demanding ideal. So like, you know, I think, I mean, I, I totally think we could have socialism, you know, but like, could whatever socialism we have, like completely satisfy the ideals that Cohen is leading out? You know, maybe not. Right. I mean, that's a, it's possible that any really existing human society would, you know, fall short of them in some ways. But I think that, Probably the most important upshot of it would be that at least all else being equal, the closer you get, you know, the more desirable that would be, right? So I know Brennan has, I don't think this is original to him. I think he's quoted somebody. I don't remember who he's quoted, but I, I know that Brennan has this sort of fun thing where he's saying, like, if you're having a picnic and you see some other hill a little while away that you could recognize would be a better place to, you know, set up your blanket and have the picnic doesn't necessarily mean you should go there if there's like a fog in between you and that other camping trip that like turns everybody into zombies or something, you know, like, you know, fair enough. Right. And I know that's kind of his metaphor for like Stalinism, but, but I think that's compatible with saying like at least all else being equal, right. If there are no gulags in your intermediary forms of social organization, right. You can say both things. Yeah. yeah. He can say that, that, that we can approximate the ideal. That's enough for it to be guiding. Yeah. But there is this further point that even if we couldn't do that, yeah. we can still like, okay, the best picnic spot is on this hill that's surrounded with a moat full of crocodiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get there, but we can nonetheless recognize that's where we would like to be if it were possible. Uh, yeah, we could have a little regret that we can't. Yeah. 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 So 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 I think that the way to sort of squeeze a more interesting conclusion out of it, even given the pessimistic conclusion depending on how far down your pessimism goes, right? Is that you could at least say, well, maybe socialist equality of opportunity modified by some kind of community principle is your North star. And maybe you can't completely get there, but the closer you could get to that, you know, the better off you'd be. Let's talk about the principles then. Conservatives and libertarians will say that they like this principle of equal opportunity, but I think Maybe if they thought about it more carefully, they wouldn't actually find it so attractive. It seems to me like it's a virtuous thing for me to work so that my kid can have an advantage, a leg up in life. I worked really hard to get my kid the best tutors and save up money so my kid can go to an elite college and really sacrifice. And that seems like virtuous. And it certainly seems more virtuous if you compare it with, I don't know, I blow that money on strippers or something stupid. So. That suggests that maybe the idea of equal opportunity isn't so compelling when we think about it more carefully, because it seems virtuous to strive for unequal opportunity in some cases. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I mean, this is, I mean, this is funny because this actually gets me straight into uh, one of my biggest disagreements with Cohen, because my answer to that challenge, I think, would definitely be different from his. Because Cohen, 
like sort of has a few different phases of his career. And one of them, he's like spending a lot of time arguing with the, you know, libertarians, but there's also a period they spend a lot of time arguing with, with John Rawls. I sort of think that like the points he makes against Rawls are sort of half right and half wrong. And in particular, one of the points where I'm most sympathetic to Rawls at least to Cohen is that I don't think sort of principles that are about how institutions should work tell you much by themselves about interpersonal morality or like what counts as like virtuous individual behavior. I'd make much more of a separation between those two things, not to the point where I think that like there's no point of contact between them. Like a good person would presumably uphold or promote, you know, just social institutions. But there's a move that Cohen makes sometimes who's criticizing Rawls, where he says that we can apply sort of principles of justice to individual behavior as, as much as to institutions. And if you really believe the principle of justice or whatever, then you'd be like applying it to your own life in a certain way. And I'm not really sold on that. I, I think that what makes something a good social institution and what makes somebody a good person strike me as pretty importantly different in particular i think what makes something a good social institution is precisely that it's impartial that like you it doesn't favor the interests of certain people over others you know all all being equal whereas i i kind of think that a person who didn't favor the interests of some people over the others would actually be a pretty bad person so like in your example a parent who didn't you know favor the interests of their child right over everybody else i actually don't think we particularly morally approve of and obviously this only goes to a point because uh, you know you overdose on partialism and you're Tony Soprano you know but I think that it's reasonable to think that there's some extent to which people are entitled to or maybe even in certain cases that we would judge them for not doing this to prioritize their own interests, the interests of their loved ones over other people's interests. Cohen's point, and I mean, in a, in a strange way, I think you and Cohen are sort of agreed because I think Cohen is is sort of much more attuned than I would be to this sort of like, well, okay, but is the cumulative effect of everything that everybody does, right, to equalize opportunity, you know, and and then maybe you and he would draw opposite conclusions from that, right? You know, and I I would say, well, I think we would judge social institutions, you know, by, by how well they promote or don't promote something like, you know, Cohen's principles, but do we judge individual people for that? That's not so clear to me. Right. And even Cohen, I think it is more conciliatory moments. Like if you read, he's got this little book called it's his Gifford lectures called like, uh, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich, which I've, you know, I was carrying that book around for like a, a while. I remember I was at a conference. My, my joke was always that. My goal in life is to get to the point where the question, that's a, that question is a good way to own me, you know, but in that book, right at the end, you know, he's sort of considering that titular question, right? You know, that like, okay, but like, is it inconsistent, right? To like have egalitarian commitments and, and not, and like still, still sort of live it up, right? Like within whatever you get in the society that, you know, that you live in and the sort of reason he gives at the end that he's most sympathetic to that somebody might give for saying, you know, that it's okay after all is, well, you want to make sure that like, if you're living in a society where being on the bottom could be really bad, right. You know, that like, it's, it's sort of legitimate to try to make sure that your children don't end up there. Right. You know? And so like, maybe that's a sort of 
excuse for that within the kind of confines of the sort of society that you live in. But like, maybe you'd go further than that and say like, well, look, don't we want a society where people could exercise this particular virtue, you know? And I don't know. I mean, I think that it's good. I think that to the extent that you're worried about your kids having bad outcomes, I think it does make you a good parent to try to avoid that for sure. Do we think that like whatever virtue there might be in that sort of act of love that you're giving your kids the best life that you can, do we necessarily think that it's a tragedy if we have a society that's so egalitarian, people don't get many opportunities to exercise that virtue? That I'm less sure about, right? I mean, I think it, I think it's probably also a virtuous thing if there are like lots of wild animals that are constantly eating people, you know, to like be super vigilant about saving your kid from the wild animals, you know, but like presumably we'd all be happier to have a society where we have animal control, you know, and, and nobody actually has a chance to engage in this act of love within whatever you think is a reasonable range of inequality to have within a society. Sure. I think it's reasonable to, do your best while balancing that against other values or whatever to make sure that you and your loved ones are coming out on the right end of that. But I also think that it might be the case, or really, I think it's definitely the case, that if we're sort of narrowing that range of unequal outcomes, that that could serve the larger interests of social justice. Yeah, so Plato in, in the Republic has uh, the idea that the, the same principle of justice that... Uh, is within an individual is oh, yeah. is what governs a city, but that kind of seems naive, and we've come to think more in terms of structures. So, like you know, in the Federalist Papers, you've got ambition counteracting ambition oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a constraint on power. That doesn't seem particularly attractive within an individual person, but at the level of institutions, checks and balances seem like a good thing. Yeah, totally, and, and this and this does get into a criticism of Cohen that, you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic to, I'm not totally sure what I think about, which is like, look, do we want to theorize about justice in a way that's completely abstracted from how we think that people are going to act? Right. Is that, does that really serve what we want a theory of justice for? Right. You know, this, the sort of way that people who make this criticism, I think would put it would be like, look, what we're really like out for, in a theory of justice is figuring out the best possible way that we could live together, you know, given the way that we actually think things are going to go. If it turns out that that comes apart in some really important way from your theory of what would be just, if you th- thought that things were going to go a, a different way, then, then maybe, you know, then maybe the first kind of justice is more important or relevant than the second. Like, I think there's probably something to be said for like having like a really demanded idea of justice just as that kind of North Star, if only to sort of measure the direction of progress. But uh I mean I'm I'm more with with Madison and Hamilton than I am with Plato or I guess or I guess G.A. Cohen. I would make more of a distinction between what counts as individual virtue and what counts as a just institution. Which is which is ironically, I should say, I think actually in this particular respect, at least, I think makes me much more of a sort of old line socialist than Cohen himself. He kind of admits at the beginning of that, whatever lecture that is, that book where he starts actually considering that question, right? Is it inconsistent for egalitarians to try to sort of maximize their personal well-being within the unequal societies? He sort of cheerfully admits that like his Montreal 
communist family that he grew up in in the 50s, you know, would have totally been on Rawls' side of that one. They would have been like, what is all of this moralistic hand-wringing about individual behavior? This really has nothing to do with politics. So let's move on to communism, Marxism. I think this is a good segue. Yep. I should warn you, though. Yeah. I have seen a five-minute Prager University video on why Marxism is bad. So if you're afraid of debating this powerhouse of conservative logic, yeah, uh, you can back out. All right. Well, I'll see you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Cohen would be what Marx would call a utopian socialist, mm-hmm. right? Because this is an attempt to organize society around like a, a rational moral principle. Like he's got a, a moral principle. It would be better if we conform to it. Whereas Marxism is Actually, this is something I hope you can clarify sure. for me because yeah. I have this complaint about Marxism that it's supposed to be a scientific uh, explanation of how capitalism came about and things have to emerge in accordance with the stages of history and all of that. And yet I read Marx and it sounds very moralistic. There, yeah. There's a there's a rhetoric throughout terms like exploitation and liberation I can't accept that these are purely descriptive terms, even yeah. if they insist that this is this is a scientific. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that this distinction between Marxism, scientific socialism, so-called, and utopian socialism, I'm not sure that I buy it. But that's supposed to be the big distinguishing feature of Marxism. So I'm hoping you could clarify there. Yeah, right. So I think... I mean, you're definitely putting your finger on something that is a distinction between Cohen and a certain kind of super orthodox Marxist, which is that there is like a strand of Marxist thought that's like very resistant to admitting that like it's maybe even in the business of making normative judgments at all, which, which is, I, I mean, I agree with you. Cohen agrees with you is, is silly because like clearly Marx certainly is expressing normative judgments, you know, constantly. I mean, there are, however, unarticulated or maybe half articulated, you know, that there is clearly an enormous amount of moral outrage that's informated and is present in Marx's writings. And, you know, I think being real about this, I mean, I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody would be a socialist if they didn't feel that, right? I mean, like, what would be the point? Why would you bother? So I, I think that if somebody says, I'm only of the business, of making sort of descriptive, you know, historical or, or economic claims. I'm not at all in the business of, of of sort of thinking about justice. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't, I don't take that very seriously. I think that there might be multiple ways of drawing that distinction about utopian, you know, scientific or allegedly scientific socialism that you know that might or might not rise or fall on on that point, right? So I think that like. One distinction might have to do with whether you think that, like, you can sort of bring about a better society just kind of by appealing to the higher angels of people's nature, or whether you need to organize them on the basis of collective self-interest. And then there's sort of maybe even a distinction about, like, okay, could you just sort of figure out at any point in human history, could you just sort of have this moral epiphany, oh, this is how we should do it? And then if enough people had it at the same time, then you'd have socialism or is there something to that idea about stages? And so like some of these ways have been suggested, you could draw those distinction, you know, like I I would be, you know, 
I would be more sympathetic to sort of traditional Marxist ideas than at least some of the things that you might mean by utopian socialism. Right? I think that like the actual experience of the the Russian Revolution, you know, I think is sort of a maybe a powerful empirical confirmation of that stage idea, right? If you don't really have built up productive forces and you just sort of try to leapfrog from what's still halfway in feudalism to some sort of socialist uh you know future, it's not like that's not really gonna work. You know, like there is a reason why Marx thought you had to have capitalism, you know, before you could you could go to socialism. So I mean all of that's all of that said in, de- in defense of the idea that there might be some part of that distinction that Ingalls was trying to draw when he uses that phrase scientific socialism that might actually make sense. But I agree with you that obviously there's normative stuff all over the place in Marx. There's normative stuff that is clearly any socialist who says that that's not what motivates them, I think at best is displaying some pretty incomplete self-awareness, right? I mean, I think, of course, that's part of what's motivating you. I'm, I'm a big fan of self-awareness and reflection. And I think as far as that phrase, scientific socialism, or the idea that there's like at least part of what's we're talking about, we talk about Marxism, it's supposed to be a descriptive theory. I mean, in some ways, it's not a great legacy because I think a lot of people, like there's a certain kind of very online Marxist who knows that terminology and runs with it in some pretty dumb ways, right? You know, that it's like, well, everything that Marx ever said is like, somehow should get the authority of like science, whatever that means to them. And, you know, that can lead people in all kinds of dumb directions. But I think that like, if there's a defensible thought underlying that idea of like scientific socialism, then I'd I'd say it's not that like science can somehow tell you that you should be a socialist, because I think there's a fact value problem there, right? It's that if you have certain normative goals, right? You could maybe have something like an engineering science that can tell you how to achieve them, right? So the same way that like, like Kant makes the point to the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals that like the same medical, you know, medical knowledge that would tell you how to save somebody's life might also tell you how to uh, poison them so nobody would ever find out about it, right? And medical science clearly isn't going to tell you by itself, you know, which one you should do, right? So it's like, there's no, it's not like medical science tells you that like a really long life is desirable, Right. Or that, like, what counts as healthy or unhealthy? It's that, like, you already have certain goals and medical science tells you to achieve them. So, something you've already alluded to is that, like, Orthodox Marxists would disavow the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union because that society was still in feudalism. It hadn't industrialized. Right. Yeah. So, so Steve Paxton has a whole book about this called Unlearned Marx. Where one of the things he points out is that. Like Lenin and Trotsky were orthodox enough Marxists that they assumed that the only way that a socialist revolution in Russia could possibly succeed is if it spread to the more industrialized West. And so you had that sort of material basis to to work from, you know, that they now they assumed that the options were either that that was going to happen or it was just going to be like collapse or, you know, just be defeated by capitalist counter revolution or something. I mean, I think in, in the historical long view, the amount of time that the Soviet Union existed was like nothing. Like you could have somebody who's born in 1917 who did die until after the Soviet Union had already fallen apart. But like, you know, the idea that it could last as long as it did in the sort of bizarre, you know, it's almost like this sort of like weird evolutionary offshoot that's like a kind of historical dead end, you know, that like I think would have surprised them. But I think that the sort of basic idea that you're not going to achieve the kind of socialism that you're looking for if you don't have like advanced productive forces that if you like like marx even says somewhere like in 
basically, if you have try to have socialism on the basis of more equally distributed scarcity, then like nothing good is going to happen, right? The old crap is all going to, you know, going to come back, right? You have to have this like more expansive kind of material base to, to work from, which might be true for a couple of reasons, right? I mean, like one of them is a very traditional sort of socialist way of understanding the sort of underlying normative goal, which is different from like Cohen's way, but you know, it might be compatible, but it's different, right? It's like saying in class societies, you have this kind of objectionable coercion that in certainly in pre-capitalist class societies is like right out of the open, right? If you're like a peasant, you know, maybe you have to give some portion of your crops to the local lord or you, you know, maybe have to spend a certain number of days a year tilling their fields instead of your field, depending on how it works in your particular version of feudalism. And like, there's going to be like some guys with swords who come if you don't do it. Then under capitalism, you've got this softer form of coercion where, look, nobody's going to like march you at gunpoint to the Amazon warehouse and make you work. In fact, the opposite is true, right? The most potent sort of disciplinary tool the boss has is the threat of losing your job, right? But nevertheless, that threat is potent enough, right? That like, that the, that like your means of subsistence rely on you sort of submitting yourself to the rule of, of whoever owns the means of production that like you end up being willing to go to a place where you're taking orders and you have exit to a point, right? You have freedom of exit in the same way that like in a society where you have like old-fashioned coverture marriage where the wife's rights are subsumed to the husband, but like say where divorce is really easy at the same time, right? You know, so it's like you have freedom of exit in the sense that a wife in such a society would have, right? Where like, or if like, you know, like women can't own their own property, but you can't get divorced really easily, right? That like, okay, you could leave this husband, but you better find another one soon, right? Then you'll still have to, you know, submit to him domestically. So it's like workers under capitalism have that kind of limited freedom of exit, they certainly don't have the power of voice to any great extent, at least if they're unskilled on the um, on the job, right? At least in capitalism in its natural form without being modified by regulatory state or unions. So the idea is that under capitalism, workers are still forced by a kind of like soft coercion of like necessity, right? You know, economic necessity to submit themselves to to a ruling class. So Ideally, the idea would be that socialism would be a further move in the right direction, right? That it's like, look, that kind of soft coercion of economic necessity is still a lot better for human freedom than the guys with swords version, but we could still do better, right? We could still have people have more autonomy over their lives and all of that stuff they have under capitalism. But if you're trying to just build a more equal society on the basis of material scarcity, then there's a real danger that you're going to go in the opposite direction, that you're going to go to less freedom, that like, that they, that, that like, that you're actually going to revert back to like a more direct form of coercion. Because like, if you're, if people don't have certain kinds of economic incentives, then, you know, you're kind of back to, you know, maybe now they're guns instead of swords, you know, but like maybe you're back to that. So things started out though with primitive communism, right? So that was distributing things equally under conditions yeah. of scarcity, wasn't it? Yeah. So the, the idea I think roughly would be, and I know there are a lot of debates that happen about how accurate this is, like anthropologically that I am not going to make any claim to be in a position to weigh it on one way or the other. Right. You know, but like 
the picture, at least based on the kinds of anthropologists that Marx and Ingalls were reading to Morgan or whatever, uh, the picture that they have is that these like earliest human societies are going to be classless societies sort of by necessity in a way, right? Cause there's like so little to go around that, that like you can't really afford to have a class of unproductive people, right? That if there are people who aren't hunting or gathering, right. Or if there are too many of them, you know, then there's just not going to be enough, you know, to like, those are just going to be like mouths. You're not going to be able to feed, you know, and, uh, that it's the transition to, like maybe the agricultural revolution, you know, that like is a sort of big step forward in the development of the forces of production that where you actually have enough to go around that you at least have the possibility of the division of society into classes that you could have like a, you know, upper class that's not actually farming or whatever, but maybe only have enough to sort of sustain that if you are engaged in some pretty direct coercion right, to, to get the people at the bottom to work for the people on the top. Whereas once you get up to the point where you have like modern industry, right, you can have capitalism, you have both the sort of capacity for having enough to go around without doing that. And actually the sort of needs of the sort of ruling class that you have in that society are different. Like, like under feudalism, you just want to keep the peasants attached to the land and, you know, want to make sure they keep tilling the fields, they don't go anywhere. Whereas under capitalism, you want a more mobile, flexible labor force where people can like move around as like businesses get started or go out of business or whatever. Marx has this really acidic phrase in capital that you want, you know, labor force that's doubly free, right? They're free in the legal sense that they're, you know, a free agent, right? To they they can make a contract for employment with any capitalist who will have them, but they're also free for many other means of supporting themselves besides making that kind of labor contract. And then, you know. Ideally, you've built it up enough through that, that then you can like have the possibility now of like a better kind of classless society and not just that you can keep people at the level that they would be at in like uh, primitive communism, right? Like, but that you can keep people in what people who are acclimated to a modern society would consider to be, you know, a reasonable, you know, level of subsistence. I think you do just have to be a relativist about this, right? I think there is like a reasonable germ of truth and like a sort of right-wing talking point that sometimes comes up here, which is like, yeah, look, what counts as poverty in a modern industrial society is absolutely nothing like what would count as poverty in like medieval England, right? That's, that's just obviously true, right? What would count as like a sort of reasonable minimum depends on the, the level of development of the forces of production, the outcome of prior class struggle, all kinds of things, right? But I think the really interesting question is not like, if you could somehow convince everybody to revert to a medieval standard of living, then could you have this, you know, like a more equal distribution and it could all work out okay. But like, given a sort of more modern conception of like what counts as a reasonable life, right? You know, like, could you have a more egalitarian form of social organization that could give everybody that? So I want to push back on this notion that came yeah. up earlier yep. about with the transition from feudalism to capitalism. We've moved in a certain direction yeah. toward freedom, and we can move even further in that direction by going right. to, to socialism. One of the features of capitalism is you've still got this domination. You're still unfree, but it's, it's a hidden kind of unfreedom because it takes the form of you, you need to have a job in order to have subsistence and you can't be fired, which is different than having a sword at your throat or something like that. Yeah, right. So this is a sort of suspicion I have 
about a lot of things. Like a concept will sort of get expanded in a sort of way. So here's an example. You expand the notion of, of violence so that speech is violence. And now you can use what we were calling violence in order to suppress speech. Or another example is you expand the notion of racism. Uh, it used to mean like overt discrimination or, or, yeah. or a tendency toward it. Yeah. Now it means these very subtle ways of regarding people differently. But now you can use actual discrimination of the kind we used to call racist in order to stop that. And I sort of fear there's something similar going on here where, of course, we're for freedom, we're against unfreedom. But now that freedom involves, like, we're defining unfreedom in such a way that it includes things that we think of as voluntary interactions. Now you can get actual coercion going to stop to stop that and to break that up. I'm somewhat suspicious of that. Right. Yeah, I get the critique. I'm 100% with you on your first example, and I'm maybe 50% with you on the second one. I think that we probably do have some normative disagreements about, I don't know, maybe affirmative action, things like that. You know, I do still 50% agree with you about it because I do think there's been some unhelpful concept creep and sort of try to make racism your sort of primary lens through which you see distributive and other kinds of injustice. I think it's just really unhelpful because you end up bashing together different kinds of problems and applying things that aren't really solutions to the to a, a more clearly understood version of the problem. But but yeah, we do disagree about the freedom one. So let's talk about that. The real question here is like, I think has to be settled at that kind of level of like, you know, reflective equilibrium, figure out like, okay, would we care about freedom? What do we really care the most about? Right? Certainly one thing we care about is is coercion, right? Coercion is bad. In fact, the sort of traditional Marxist complaint, even if, like we were saying earlier, a lot of Marxists wouldn't articulate it as such, right? Because they're allergic to sounding like they're doing moral theory, you know, is is that just employment relations under capitalism are coercive, you know, because people don't have a a realistic choice about it, right? It's like Cohen has a nice paper about this called The Structural Proletariat on Freedom, where he makes this argument, check it out and judge for yourself whether he's made it convincingly. But, you know, you can understand freedom in this sort of way that like somebody like Robert Nozick would understand it, right? Where it's like, it's, it's all kind of at base. It's kind of all about property rights, which includes a lot of things that don't look economic because we're also talking about your property rights in yourself, right? If you're also owning yourself, then like that lets us include a lot of other kinds of things that look like freedom as ultimately issues about property rights. So like under freedom is like, I don't know, the sort of internet libertarian way of putting it would be like violating like the non-aggression principle. Right? That that's that's what counts as unfreedom. And then there's a different way of thinking about freedom and unfreedom, where what we're really talking about is your ability in practice to sort of determine the course of your life, to live the way that you want to live. Actually, wait, wait. And there's even a further, more robust yeah. Uh, yeah. kind of freedom, which is the freedom to direct your life in a way that's actually good. Uh-huh. Because if I have all this ability to behave in a self-destructive way, yeah. You know, you might not think that's real freedom. Real freedom means the ability to choose wisely or rightly or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm pretty suspicious of that last one. I will just say I, I don't I don't claim to have some great argument against that in my back pocket, but my hackles get raised a little bit, right? Like because that makes me suspicious that we're conflated two very different values that might be both real values, but in a way that like doesn't really lend itself towards clarity about either one of them, right? That it's like, look, we're going to make normative judgments, obviously, about how people live their lives, right? You know, that like whether they've done so well or badly in either a prudential or a moral sense or both or whatever, right? You know, that like, and that's fair enough, right? Like those are 
values we're going to have. And we also value freedom, but I'm suspicious of the idea that like, oh, real freedom is freedom to make the right decision, right? You know, it's like, well, I don't know. It doesn't sound very free to me, right? If you can't also make wrong decisions, right? I can just sort of imagine a, you know, council of philosopher kings somewhere or like have like, or oversee in a totalitarian society that they've convinced themselves is like very free because everybody's free to do exactly what these guys think is right. On the other hand, I, I, I see where you're coming from and I appreciate that. I feel yeah. the intuition. Yeah. But on the other hand, suppose that somebody puts a drug in my cabinet here that has no other use other than to commit suicide or to commit murder. Now I have that ability I didn't before. Have I become more free? I don't want to say so because it's like that's something I shouldn't do. So I kind of have the intuition the other way when I think of that example. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I think that my inclination on that example would be to say that, like, maybe you have become free. It doesn't mean the situation as a whole has improved. It could just be there are other values besides freedom we're we're bringing in here that we think might outweigh the sort of value of increased freedom in that case, right? You know, that's, yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I, I mean, okay. So I think this is like obviously a giant topic, right? Which if, you know, I mean, it's an even bigger topic if we bring in the third one, but I mean, even just with the first two, it's a giant topic, like which one of those sort of gets at like the kind of freedom that we most care about on reflection. Obviously, I'm going to go with the second one. I would maybe make two points about this. One is that I don't think that the first one is going to be as informative as we sometimes think it will be, because I think that it doesn't, it doesn't really tell you very much absent like a, a fleshed out theory of which property rights we have and of course you know any good sort of philosophically sophisticated libertarian will say yeah but i've got one of those right here it is right and fair enough but like i would still say that like what's really doing most of the work is your theory of like which kinds of property people are entitled to right and like your theory of freedom is a little bit decorative, right? It's not really what's driving things forward, right? The sort of core of the objection from my perspective would be like when I say that, like, I don't think this conception of freedom does as much work as a lot of people think it does is that, okay, on this first conception of freedom, if I've taken away your property, that's a instance of unfreedom, you know, I've violated your rights. But I think all the action is really going to be at the question of what counts as your property. And I think that oftentimes the discussion is conducted on the level of this sort of intuitive, come on, we all know what I mean when I say, you know, my property, your property, whatever. But I think that there's like, there's a ambiguity that's being covered over here, right? Because it's like, okay, well, do you mean what's legally my property? Because if so, that can't ground any objections to redistribution, at least redistribution by the state. Because if redistribution is happening by the state, then like, you know, the part of your income that's being taxed away, for example, or even nationalized, right, you know, is not legally your property at that point. It's the property of the IRS or the property of the nationalizing agency or whatever. And then if you mean like what's the property that you're like morally entitled to, then it becomes a little vacuous because then you say, okay, sure, but like which property, which people are morally entitled to? That's like the whole issue of dispute, right? Like, are you entitled to like whatever property can be traced back to some immaculate act of original acquisition? Are you entitled to, you know, or, you know, that sort of like falls out of some unregulated free market process? That's one substantive theory of property entitlement. 
but you know, we could have a different substantive theory of property entitlement that's like more Cody or Ralsey or, you know, like any number of other things that like would get you a very different result. And it doesn't really seem like the the dispute between those theories of substantive entitlement has very much to do with like whether one side is valuing freedom more than the other. Like that just sort of seems like we we disagree about like this kind of theory of entitlement. Yeah, like I think like the non-aggression sort of principle yeah. is not as helpful as you might think. Like there's a slogan, my right to swing my fist ends with your nose. But like, usually we're talking about things more complicated than that when we yeah. want guidance, you know, your nose is one thing. What about your participation in this podcast or your intellectual yeah. property or you're part of the factory where hundreds of people are making a single product and things just seem a lot, a lot messier. And like, what would even count as aggression? And I like the fact that you brought up intellectual property because that makes the point perfectly because that's an area where you get like really sharp disagreement between people who are like all hardcore libertarians, right? Because like there are even people who are libertarians who would say, well, what IP really is, is a kind of like statist, like monopoly protection you get. Because, you know, you're the first person to come up with something, so therefore nobody else is allowed to produce it. And so that's actually a violation of property rights, whereas others say, no, come on, like, this is clearly exactly the sort of thing the theory of property rights should protect. And, like, whoever you think is right or wrong, or if you disagree with enough libertarian premises, they're all wrong, whatever, you know, that's a case where you have no consensus whatsoever about it, even though presumably all participants in the discussion have the same underlying idea of freedom. I would also just point out that there are certain contexts in which conservatives and many libertarians seem to adopt the second conception of freedom, right? That's sort of like my ability and practice to like lead my life the way I want to lead it. And even sort of seem to acknowledge that like economic necessity can undermine it, right? So the example I'm thinking of here is conservatives and some libertarians who will support like right to work laws that they'll say, you know, if there's like a union at a workplace, they can't negotiate a contract with the employer by which all future employees have to be members of the union, or if they're not members of the union, at least pay an agency fee to, you know, for like the services the union provides them or whatever, because they'll say, well, no, because that's forcing people to be a member of a union. And so they should have a right not to do that, right? That violates their freedom. The really interesting thing about that example is that that only violates their freedom if you assume that like having to do something in order to have a job can violate your freedom, right? Hey, nobody's forcing you at gunpoint to to go work at that union shop where you have to be a member of the union to to work there, right? I mean, you could also question whether leftists are being inconsistent in opposing it. I don't think so, but I can see why you might, you know, raise that worry. But that that does seem to be a case in which that second conception of freedom is actually adopted at least temporarily by the right. So let's go with the second conception uh, of freedom. Yeah. So it's a point that you raise in one of your articles, which is that uh, it's not just freedom to choose, but freedom of an acceptable choice. Like yeah. We don't think that the slave that jumps off of the ship and yeah, yeah. suicide rather than submitting to slavery, we, we wouldn't normally call that a free choice in the sense that we, a sense of freedom that we politically care about. Then the question is, what is an acceptable choice, you know? And my worry is that the socialists are going to put that bar super, super high and then like, oh, look, 
capitalism is just, it's unfree because none of the choices are acceptable. Looks like we need revolution. Let me propose this. Sure. Acceptability suggests that there's a line somewhere up here, acceptable, down here, not acceptable. But suppose we had like a gradient conception of this where there's no free, unfree binary, but the more sort of options become available to you, the freer you become. And then I would just say, look, we're becoming more free all the time because the economy is growing. We're getting richer. Capitalism is just moving us along this spectrum already. We don't need any revolution for this. Maybe if you want some state intervention, we could have like a welfare baseline. I mean, we can argue about that. Welfare isn't socialism, as I'm sure you know. A lot of conservatives think just like welfare is socialism, but that's not ownership of the means of production. So I would say it's not. Anyway, so that's kind of how I would want to respond to that critique. Yeah. Um, I think that that last question about the sort of relationship between like a welfare state within capitalism and and socialism is an interesting one. I do think that there are certain kinds of things that we think of as like part of a robust welfare state that, I mean, their existence certainly isn't enough to make a society that has them socialists, but like they, they do involve some level of social ownership of some things that would otherwise be privately owned, right? You know, like a, like an obvious example would be like a, a hospital in England as opposed to the United States, right? But putting that aside, I'm sympathetic to the first part of the move, right? That it might be better to think of like freedom and unfreedom as a spectrum rather than as a binary. I could definitely see the appeal of that. I think that that by itself, I don't know how much it changes the shape of the argument about capitalism as opposed to just sort of how you'd ask the question, right? The question would now no longer be, are workers under capitalism unfree in that binary sense of freedom, it would now be our workers under capitalism unfree to an objectionable extent that could be fixed by changing the system or, you know, our workers under capitalism unfree to a much greater extent than they would be under an alternative system. And does that give us a reason to move towards an alternative system, whether what that movement would look like in an advanced capitalist democracy exactly looks like a revolution in the traditional sense or not, right? There's a whole other can of worms for you probably don't need to open right now. But yeah, I, I think that that would be the question. I mean, I think that the the last argument, or I, you know, I guess the middle thing, right, is I think a little bit separate from that, which is like, okay, do we need to move towards an alternative system for the sake of the interests of the people at the bottom of society, whether we're thinking of like freedom or whether we're thinking of like a more straightforwardly welfareist kind of way that we're thinking of that our interests because after all under capitalism people's conditions still get better over time right is that good enough right? i mean this so this is the sort of thing that like you know jason brett who we were talking about earlier he'll sort of give this what he thinks is like a like a rawlsian defense of capitalism where he's like yeah, look, you know, behind the veil of ignorance, whatever, like you, you should pick capitalism because, you know, like if the standard is, well, as long as it's good for the, the interests of the people at the bottom, well, you know, the floor raises over the course of time, right? And that's kind of good enough. I guess I don't find that move fully convincing for a couple of reasons. One is that what is empirical and, you know, so like that's maybe the least interesting conversation between two philosophy nerds because we just might just disagree about what the underlying facts are, which is like, okay, under certain periods of capitalist history, the floor has raised, under others, not so much. 
what's the difference? How much was like the threat of an alternative system in the Cold War a factor in having the form of capitalism whereby living, you know, like you did at least have that sort of implicit social contract that, you know, your children are going to have a better life than you and all that stuff in ways that are less clearly true more recent decades. Like, I think there's a complicated empirical argument to be had there, and I'm not totally sure what all the right answers are. But I think even just running with the premise for the sake of argument, right? Let's assume that you're talking about, you know, a form of capitalism where things are improving for the people at the bottom of society and their children's lives are going to be better than theirs are, maybe even within one lifetime, right? From the beginning of your working life to retirement or whatever, right? You know, your own standard of living is getting better, right? Is that good enough? I'd be reluctant to say that that's good enough. I think that the question is still going to be comparative, right? So, so in other words, like if we're living under system A and your life is not that great, but uh, if we stick with system A, your children's life will be better than yours, or maybe by the end of your life, right? Your, you know, your living standard will be great. Does that mean that system A is fine and we don't need to move to system B? Well, I think that depends on what's going to happen under system B, right? I mean, like, and, and that's like, so. If you think that like under system B, the people who are at the bottom under system A are going to be even worse off, right? Then like, sure, right? Then like, there's a very straightforward Rawlsian argument for keeping system A. But if on the other hand, you think that under system B, people at the bottom are going to be significantly better off than they are under system A right now, right? Then like that gives you a reason to want to switch right now. I'd also point out that like the trend line shouldn't be the only question, right? Because like. Even if we assume that your grandchildren will be better off if we stick with capitalism than your hypothetical socialist grandchildren would be, that by itself is not necessarily a knockdown argument because, you know, people who exist right now also count, right? If you have a more equal distribution of the resources society has right now, right, that's going to make a big difference to people who exist right now, right? So at the very least, the question of how to balance that against whatever benefits, you know, future people might get from, from like maybe more rapid economic development or whatever. I'd be, I don't know. I think Reddit is at the very least way too quick about it. So for example, um, in the 19th century, you had moderate anti-slavery people and hardcore abolitionists. And so a lot of the moderates were thinking it's a dying institution. It's a feudal institution. It'll die out. We just got to contain it. Yeah. And that could be actually true. And still, the abolitionist might have grounds for saying, unacceptable. It's got to be gone now, immediately. And it's worth the cost to get rid of it right now, even if there's bloodshed in order to do it. That could still be right, even though the trajectory is, is in the right direction. Yeah. However, I think that if, if you acknowledge the moderate, uh. the moderate abolitionist point... Uh. It's a lot harder to argue for the strict abolitionism if it's really true that that's going to involve like a ton of costs up front, like civil war and stuff. Yeah. If you think that like the sort of Abraham Lincoln wing of the anti-slavery movement, which is what you're describing, that like says you're sort of moderate Republicans who thought that like, yeah, we should contain it and try to squeeze it, you know, but like. We don't need to abolish it. We can just sort of create conditions under which it will slowly die over time, right? Like, if you accept that that's going to work, that doesn't destroy the case for abolitionism, but it does weaken it, right? And so I think something structurally true is going to be here. I will say, just as a little historical footnote on that, that what actually happened was that the moderate anti-slavery 
forces were put into power and that the slaveholders forced the issue as, re- as a response, right? You know, so it's like, because right. uh, even, even sort of like we're going to sort of try to engineer it so you slowly die out over time was still too much. You know, now what the historical analogies are in this case is going to be much messier. But I mean, I think that part of the difference here might have to do with how much you think that just sort of developmentalist just kind of like letting technological progress and economic development and everything do their thing is going to sort of lead to these results of themselves or how much emphasis you put on the second part of what you said earlier when you were initially presented the argument which is about the sort of like welfare state amelioration and you know whatever i mean i think welfare states are really good things i think that like I don't think that Sweden is a socialist society, but I think it's a hell of a lot better than what we have, you know, in the United States, you know, and it's, it's sort of usefully partially implemented some, some socialist ideas, even under, you know, under capitalism, why not just stop at Sweden, right? If a sort of moderate defender of capitalism and, and, and you know, even maybe a pragmatic socialist could, could both come together on like, that's better. Why not, you know, why not just say, okay, well, there we go. Now that's the goal, right? Like, let's, let's forget about anything that like would change the economic system in more fundamental ways. And my answer to that would be partially a sort of ideological objection and then partially a pragmatic one. So the ideological objection is going to be that it still seems to me that is that even with the great like improvements that come about from having this nice, robust welfare state and strong unions and all that stuff. I still think that having people have no realistic choice except to go to work by and large in regular capitalist workplaces where they're being, you know, subjects to the, you know, the rule of people that don't, you know, they don't get to elect and all that stuff. Right. I mean, I, I still think there's like a, a normative objection to that, that I take seriously, whether you want to say that that means that people are unfree in a binary sense or just they're too unfree. Right. And I'm actually sympathetic to the second way of talking, but like, so that's the like ideological objection. And then the sort of pragmatic objection is more like, well, is that kind of halfway point really stable historically, right? Is it going to be that we could just go there and no further, right? Could you even like have gotten there without the energies of people who were motivated by a, a more sort of robust idea of social change that ultimately went beyond it? That's a historical question. Once you're there, right? Could can you just keep it there forever? Because if you still have like a capitalist class that, you know, retains its economic power, is there always going to be some incentive to try to use that economic power to exert political influence to undermine what you've already achieved? That's an empirical question, but that's the kind of worry that I take seriously. So like, so yeah, those would be all my reasons for, for, for saying that, like, I don't think that we should just stop at like the sort of nicest version of welfare state capitalism. I think you should keep going. And like try to go further than that, although, you know, also it's like kind of a funny argument to have, at least as Americans, because what we're talking about is like, it's almost like saying like, I don't know, we're both just like playing pickup basketball, but I'm like dreaming about the NBA and like say, okay, well, would I be happy if I just made it into the NBA or like, do I need to win a championship when I get there? You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's an argument you could have, but I made like the, the first part is incredibly aspirational anyway, right now, that would be much more political success for my kind of program than, that I would be optimistic about achieving in the near future. So, so Sweden is more socialist than the U S in certain respects, like, especially if you count welfare state as like yeah. socialism. Yeah. Uh, and a lot more taxes and stuff. 
But in other respects, it's more free market. I think it's the Heritage Foundation Conservative Index of Economic Freedom. They rank Sweden and I think all of those Scandinavian countries above the U.S. So they've got a very capitalist system that allows them to pay for this huge welfare state. I think Sweden's got more billionaires per capita than the U.S. too. So you could take many different lessons from the idea of let's move in the direction of Sweden and not all of them I think you'd like. Maybe. So you'll be unshocked to hear that I have objections to those those rankings. Uh, I uh, don't say. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wrote an article for Jacobin. It wasn't about uh, heritage, but it was about a, a different similar thick tank as the Fraser Institute of Canada. Since that was one that I think it just, whatever I wrote the article, I, I must have had some kind of news hook about it. Maybe they just put out their rankings for that year or something. But yeah, I think a lot of those, when you really start to look at methodology, I'm skeptical that those really track what like libertarians typically mean by economic freedom. Because like that sounds like we're talking about the sorts of issues that are typically in dispute, you know, between libertarians and conservatives on the one hand and like social democrats and socialists on the other, right? Like that sounds yeah, like... One, one red flag immediately... Yeah. Singapore was up at the top of the one that I saw. And it's like, they'll execute you for having drugs in Singapore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think like sodomy is illegal in Singapore. I mean, those are things I wouldn't think of as, as being particularly free. So yeah. I, it sounds like you've looked more into these yeah, but, than yeah. I have. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just refer people to that article and, and I'll, and I'll say I'm very skeptical about the rankings. And in particular, I think that a lot of the, Stuff that people will really play up. I, again, I think Matt Brudig has written about this. People can check that out. Is like, oh, it's like easier to start a business. And uh, and I think once you really look into what that means, there are fewer layers of paperwork, right? Which and I don't want to, I mean, that stuff's pain in the ass. I don't want to like dispute the importance of that. But one, that's not typically an issue that's in dispute, right? You know, between uh, the, the, the left and the right. And two, I think part of the reason why in the U.S. you do have so many layers of paperwork is actually about American federalism. That you know that that we have this like weird combination of powers, the local and state and federal levels. You know, whereas I think I think you could get something much more streamlined if you have more centralized government, which isn't typically something that libertarians and conservatives advocate. I mean, I guess the last thing I'd say about this is just like, I mean, I think the fact that you might have more billionaires per capita. I mean, that tells me that like, okay, we could disagree about whether we could have like full socials and still have a thriving economy. And that's like a whole other subject, but like that, that tells me that we could at least get a lot of the stuff I want in the short term and still have a thriving economy. That sounds pretty good. And if you've, and if you've agreed that like we could have high tax rates and extensive social services and mostly publicly owned healthcare, like they have in most of these countries and, incredibly strong labor unions that engage in sector-wide bargaining over wage levels. If you're telling me that all of those things are consistent with a very high degree of economic freedom, then my next question is going to be, oh, cool. So like, what would, you know, what would your objection be to us having those things, right? You know, that, that would be what I would want to know from libertarians or conservatives playing this stuff up. So we're past two hours. I said I wouldn't keep you on much longer. I've got a parting shot. Sure. Let's do it. Here's my parting shot. So you, you mentioned that like the Orthodox yeah. Marxists are going to disavow the, the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union because of the, you know, it did not come about through an industrialized society. It, it skipped the, the capitalist stage and went from feudalism to attempted communism. 
But I'm wondering if things have turned out much, much differently with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union still existed and thrived and it was a non-repressive place. Oh, yes. Do you think they would emphasize that difference so much? Oh. Or would they say, eh, close enough. It's real communism with one little caveat. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I mean, I think that's a totally fair point. I think that the, uh, so Cohen in, in one of the chapters he adds on in the uh, 2000 edition of Karl Marx's Theory of History makes the sort of argument that I was gesturing at earlier. But like he he does kind of like acknowledge that in passing. He's like, look, I mean, would anybody be talking about this? Of course not, right? I mean, it's like obviously Marxists would much rather have a thriving, attractive model of socialism than be proven right about this like prediction, right? So like it's sort of maybe a sociological irony that like in both directions, right? That what would appear to many more people as a vindication of Marxism and what would probably be claimed by Marxists as a vindication of Marxism. I think actually really objectively would not be, right? It would be a, a refutation of at least one traditional Marxist claim, but also like, yeah, I think most people would rather like have their political goals achieved than be right, than like, than be right about like somebody you know, like esoteric claim about how you know, historical processes work. Yeah, and probably it's true that if there was like a straight up Marxist revolution yeah. and it turned out like this flourishing success yeah. and everything conservatives wanted, conservatives would like, reach back into Das Kapital, pull it off the shelf, and like, oh, you didn't follow this one. Must not be real Marxism. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, maybe I wonder about that. I mean, like, I think that it, uh, I think in like a really thriving, non-repressive socialist society, you'd still have conservatives, like, but it would sort of be the way that you still have monarchists right now, right? Or maybe like you'd, you'd have conservatives, but it'd be like a new form of conservatism where it wouldn't so much be about economic issues that would just sort of be taken as red. It would be, I don't know, maybe there'd be like some like purely cultural form of conservatism that would be anti-socialist anymore or something. I have no idea. I'd like to find out. Well, I think conservatism, I think conservatism should evolve, right? Like, I think if something is successful, then that's like one of the things that you should conserve, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting question, you know, because, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that if you're conservative now, you presumably want to conserve that was, you know, at what time didn't exist, right? You know, but I don't know if that's inconsistent necessarily. That's just interesting. I don't think it's inconsistent. Anyway, it's been great having you on. Do you have any uh, final thought? No, I think that's good. Okay. It's great to finally meet and have this and looking forward to having the edited thing for you. Uh, That sounds good, though. All right.